The University of Manchester's podcasts are noted in society for their hosts' sparkling banter that captivates their listeners. Mmm, delicious. Magnificent. Delicious. <gasps> Excellent. Très bien. Monsieur, with this podcast, you are really spoiling us. The Jodcast, voting for the Star Party, with Megan Argo, David Alt, Jen Gupta, Stuart Lowe, and Ian Morrison. The Jodcast, May 2010 edition. Hello and welcome to the Jodcast, where we pride ourselves on listening to what you want. So just before we get into the main body of the show, here is Stuart and Jen to tell us a little bit more about the listener survey. Hi there, guys. Hi, Dave. Yep, so as we mentioned on the last show, we've got a new listener survey for you guys to fill out. The last survey was way back when in 2007, before I was even involved with the Jodcast. You were born, though. I was born. I was alive. (laughs) Everyone keeps telling me I'm a child. Anyway, the link is on the website, but you can get to it by going to jogcast.net slash survey. And we just want to know who you are, what you think of the Jogcast, any ways that we can improve, um, partly so that we can make the Jogcast better and also so we can report back to STFC who fund us so that we can tell them what wonderful things we've done with their money. Which is ultimately UK taxpayers' money. So yes, it's important to report back. And just to give you some incentive, we were donated a book by Canopus Press while we were at the National Astronomy Meeting, more on that later, and they donated a book called Dark Side of the Universe, Dark Matter, Dark Energy and the Fate of the Cosmos, and that's by Ian Nicholson. So we'll be giving that away to one lucky winner, which we'll select. Just to reassure you, your entry for that competition and your responses are kept completely separate, so there is no requirement that you have to say nice things about us. And in fact, if you have any things that you think we should be doing better at the Jodcast, please do tell us on the survey. And if you want to be entered into that draw, you have to submit your responses before the 13th of May because we'll be announcing the winner in the next show. So remember that link is on the front page of the website and in the show notes, but you can get to it directly by going to jodcast.net forward slash survey. So in the show this time, we're having a bit of a conference special. Megan went to the Communicating Astronomy with the Public meeting in Cape Town earlier this year, and we have some interviews for you that she recorded there. We also have the first batch of interviews from NAM that Jen and Stuart attended in Glasgow last month. As always, we found out what you can see in the night sky this month, and we round up your feedback. But first, before all of that, here's the news with Megan Argo. In the news this month, the nature of the eclipsing binary system Epsilon Origae the strange atmosphere of GJ436b, and volcanoes on Venus. Many stars vary in brightness, sometimes due to changes within the star itself, such as Novae or Cepheid variables, others because of external factors. One well-known variable star is Epsilon Origae, an F-type supergiant in the constellation of Origa, located at an estimated distance of 625 parsecs. Since its variable nature was discovered in the 1820s, the star has been seen to fade in brightness every 27.1 years. During these 18-month-long eclipses, the brightness of the star fades to around 50% of its normal magnitude. While the variability of the system has been well studied, the exact physical nature of the eclipsing companion is less certain, as it has remained undetected, and many models have been put forward to explain the unusual nature of the system. 
Observations of Epsilon Erigae show that the star and its darker companion have a similar mass, which, until recently, was thought to be around 15 times the mass of the Sun. More recent observations have shown that the supergiant star has a much lower mass of between two and three solar masses, and that the companion may be a single B5V type star embedded within a disk of opaque material. Now, using the Chara interferometer, an array of infrared telescopes located on Mount Wilson in California, a team, led by Brian Kloppenborg from the University of Denver, have, for the first time, imaged the eclipsing object as it transits the disk of the star. This is the first time a spatially resolved observation of an eclipsing binary has been made. Their observations show that the eclipsing object is an opaque disk of dust, tilted to our line of sight by an estimated 84 degrees. From the motion of the disk between two observations carried out in November and December 2009, the team infer that the companion object is more massive than the visible F-type supergiant. Assuming the B-type star within the disk has a typical mass of 5.9 solar masses, the researchers calculate a mass of 3.6 solar masses for the F-type supergiant. They also calculate that if the disk is composed entirely of dust, then its mass is less than 10% of the Earth's. While the nature of the disk is now clearer, there are still several unanswered questions which remain. The model that best fits the data is of a geometrically thin disk tilted to our line of sight, rather than a thick disk seen edge-on. However, the fact that it is opaque suggests that its nature is more like a debris disk than a dusty accretion disk around a young stellar object. The tilted disk model also predicts a central hole which should cause a mid-eclipse brightening of the F-type star. Observers the world over will continue to monitor the system during the eclipse, and the data should help build up a profile of the disk and constrain the evolutionary history of the system. Most known extrasolar planets are massive gas giants orbiting close to their parent stars. If one of these planets happens to pass directly between us and its parent star during its orbit, then sensitive spectroscopy can be used to determine the chemical makeup of its atmosphere. Models of such atmospheres predict which gases should be present and in what relative abundances, based on physical conditions such as the temperature. Recent infrared observations carried out with the Spitzer Space Telescope have provided the first details of the atmospheric composition of a so-called hot Neptune. The planet, known as GJ436b, orbits an M-type dwarf star in the constellation of Leo. It is similar to Neptune in size, but orbits its parent star in just 2.6 days. Previous observations of the planet showed that its surface temperature was estimated to be 712 Kelvin, higher than predicted due to the stellar heating alone, and new observations reported in the April 22nd issue of Nature suggests that its atmosphere may not be in equilibrium. The team, led by Kevin Stevenson at the University of Central Florida, observed the planet's dayside as it passed around the far side of the star, and examined the infrared spectrum for various chemical signatures. What they found was a high abundance of carbon monoxide, and a deficiency of methane compared to predictions from atmospheric models at this temperature for an atmosphere thought to be dominated by hydrogen. In an atmosphere such as this, methane, one carbon atom and four hydrogen atoms, should be the main carbon-bearing molecule, but the observations show the actual abundance is less than that predicted by a factor of 7,000. The large amount of absorption due to carbon monoxide is also unexpected, the results suggesting that the atmosphere may not be in thermochemical equilibrium. One alternative explanation considered by the authors is that the atmosphere may not be dominated by hydrogen, but this is unlikely given the dominance of hydrogen in planetary-forming disks. Another possibility is that the vertical mixing within the atmosphere may dredge up carbon monoxide from lower, hotter parts of the atmosphere, although the authors point out that, in order to explain the observed abundances, the amount of mixing would have to be large. 
This new data will provide useful information for future atmospheric modelling. Closer to home, the planet Venus shows large amounts of evidence of volcanic activity. Despite being shrouded under a thick layer of cloud, spacecraft have been able to map the surface of our nearest neighbour using radar, leading to the realisation that much of the planet's surface is comparatively young, suggesting that at some point in the recent past the planet underwent a complete resurfacing. However, the question remains whether Venus is currently a geologically active planet. Most of the planet's surface is known to be covered by features caused by volcanic activity, such as shield volcanoes, coroni, pancake domes, and other features caused by lava flows or crustal uplifts. The relative lack of craters, compared to known ancient surfaces like the lunar and Martian highlands, implies that the surface is comparatively young. While the thick atmosphere of Venus prevents observers from seeing directly signs of current volcanic activity, a team using data from the Visible and Infrared Thermal Imaging Spectrometer on board the European Space Agency's Venus Express Orbiter have discovered evidence of recent resurfacing. They use data from the Virtus instrument to examine closely several known hotspots on Venus. These hotspots are analogous to their terrestrial counterparts such as the Hawaii chain of islands, in that they have distinctive rises compared to the surrounding terrain, major volcanic centres, and gravitational anomalies, suggestive of active plumes of material flowing up through the planet's mantle. By studying the thermal emissivity of these regions, the researchers have identified compositional differences in lava flows at these hotspots compared to the surrounding surfaces, which they interpret as being due to a lack of surface weathering. Since weathering is a gradual process which occurs over long timescales, this all implies that the features are younger than two and a half million years, and possibly much younger, showing that Venus has been actively resurfacing, at least partially, in the recent past. The results were published in Science Express on April the 8th. And finally, NASA's Solar Dynamics Observatory made its first light observations during April. Launched aboard an Atlas V rocket on February the 11th, the spacecraft is on a five-year mission to observe our nearest star in detail. The observations will help solar physicists understand solar activity and how it impacts us here on the Earth. The first light observations were released on April the 21st and show a turbulent and dynamic surface. As well as taking images at a variety of wavelengths in order to probe different levels of the solar atmosphere, the instruments on board SDO can pick out features as small as 350 kilometres across and take images every few seconds so events can be studied in detail. One of the main goals of SDO is to try and understand how the Sun's magnetic field is generated and how the energy stored in the magnetic field is released into the heliosphere. Data from SDO's instruments should help predict solar variations that affect life here on Earth. Images and movies from the first light observations are available on the SDO website. Thanks for that, Megan. And we're staying with Megan for the time being because she recently went to the Communicating Astronomy with the Public meeting in South Africa in Cape Town and she recorded some interviews while she was there. Over to you, Megan. So I'm talking to George Miley, who's from Leiden University in the Netherlands. Um, so we're at the Communicating Astronomy with the Public meeting, which is something that's set up by the International Astronomical Union, um, Commission 55. Could you tell us a little bit about Commission 55, what its goals are? Yeah, Commission, well, the, the IU has several commissions. One of them is Commission 55, Communicating Astronomy with the Public. Uh, there's another very related commission, uh, Commission 46, which is uh, Education and Development. And the CAP 2010 meeting brings together communicators of science. And, uh, of course, it's a celebration of the enormous success of the International Year of Astronomy. I don't think anybody who had begun this could have 
thought that it would have reached so many people in so many countries, 144 countries. There are only 68 members of the International Astronomical Union, professional astronomers, so it's the, it's the alliance between professional astronomers, amateurs, teachers, and the general public. There's an enormous appetite for astronomy. It's incredible. And somebody said that I think there were 46 countries represented here at this, this one meeting. Yes, and a, a lot of people don't have the funding to be able to come here. So uh, I, I, I think there would have been people from 144 countries if there had been enough funding. Uh, so it, it's, a, it's a huge thing. And um, in the IEU, I'm, I'm one of the six vice presidents, and my responsibility is education and development. And over the last two years, we have developed a strategic plan, Astronomy for the Developing World. And this is a decadal plan. It's not just geared to astronomy research, but it's geared to capacity building. We believe that astronomy is a unique tool in building the capacity of a country because it has links to technology, it has links to science, and it has links to culture. These are three pillars of development, and I think... Every developed country has culture, science, and technology. So we want to use astronomy from the very early stage, from the early stage to inspire young children, then to secondary education. It's a very good training in an analytic research, and it's a good way of persuading people to pursue a career in science and technology. And then research. These days you can be involved with cutting-edge astronomical research no matter where you are in the world very, very inexpensively. And lastly, public outreach. I think astronomy, of all the science, astronomy is the science that appeals to us all. We all come from the Big Bang, and it's, uh, it's an inspiring science. It is. And there's also been a lot of talk this week about using astronomy to help uh, developing countries progress their science infrastructure. Yeah, and uh, I... I encourage anybody who is interested in this to download our strategic plan from the IAU website. It's a big venture, and we, at the moment, our education and development activities, there are about 100 volunteers that are active. Now, there are 10,000 members of the IAU, there are postdocs and graduate students, there are huge millions of, of uh, amateur astronomers. And the idea is to mobilize the resources that were mobilized for the IYA, but to concentrate them on development. This development is not only in poor countries, but also in rich countries. There are a lot of regions or a lot of big cities where primary education is, uh, there's enormous need. Secondary education, there's enormous need. And the big change of the IU now is that we're going in the direction of pre-university education. Up till now, we've been mainly busy with professional astronomers who are interested in developing research capacity, but we're now on a much broader focus. Fantastic. Thank you very much for talking to us. Okay. So I'm talking to Kevin Govander, who is the man behind the Communicating Astronomy with the Public Conference 2010 here in Cape Town. So how's the conference been? Well, it seems from the participants that are there that uh, it went pretty well. People seem to have enjoyed it, and the reaction at the close of the conference uh, seems to be very positive. So we must have done something right. (laughs) So it's been impressive the number of different countries that have been represented here. Were you surprised at how many different uh, nationalities were actually here? 
Well, I was a bit disappointed. I thought I thought that we'd get more. Uh, um, uh, basically, we've been lobbying for this conference for a long time now, uh, well before the the year of astronomy, and uh, we really wanted uh, as many people as possible to to experience South Africa, to experience Africa, to meet people here, so that we can uh, encourage further collaboration with with people from this region of the world. Right, it's been a fantastic meeting. There's been some really exciting stuff that's come out of it. Um, is there any particular project that you thought was, was really exciting? What's the most interesting thing that you've seen this week? Well, I wish I had more time to see stuff. <laughs> I, I, I actually ended up not seeing many of the talks. But, uh, but I think that what was coolest for me was uh, having the Africa meeting. We had a lunch meeting on, the, on, on developing astronomy in Africa, and I was very happy to see a, a, a very good turnout and very positive discussion. So I'm looking forward to, to uh, seeing how that develops in the future. Excellent. And all of the talks were recorded, weren't they? So they will be available on the web for anybody who couldn't make it to the meeting? Absolutely, absolutely. We're going to get the videos online and the PowerPoints as well as the posters. Fantastic. Well, good job. It's been an excellent conference. I've really enjoyed it and everyone I've spoken to has as well. So well done. Brilliant. I'm glad. Then we are happy. Our job is done. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks very much, Kevin. Excellent. Thanks. Okay, so I'm talking to Caroline Oudman, who works for the University of Leiden in the Netherlands, and also the coordinator of UNAWI. So here at the Communicating Astronomy Public Conference, what's been the most exciting thing you've heard about this week? That's a tough question. <laughs> There's been so much exciting stuff going on. I think it's just the magic, the synergy, people meeting up. I've seen people network and come together, um, and that wouldn't have happened were it not for this conference. And, yeah, I guess that's, that's the main point. So that's been absolutely brilliant. And... Uh, I've been able to meet people for the first time who I've been working with remotely for so long, and and that's brilliant. <laughs> Put a face to a name, to a reputation, to a program, to yeah, inspiring people. Lots of cool. Have you got lots of new ideas for projects and new collaborations? Yes. <laughs> Gosh, don't get me started on that. No, it's, it's overwhelming. The opportunities are overwhelming. But the cool thing, I think, is that all the people here are very inspired. Inspired people get lots of ideas. And there's way more ideas than there is time and uh, people power to carry it out. So I'm hoping, because this is a bunch of communicators, that they can enroll more people in those activities because then you know the network grows the future is assured and all of that and that'd be really really cool so i'd like to see all the ideas um made available to people like you know i have this idea i don't have time to do it do it for me you know (laughs) ideas are free yeah thank you very much thank you Okay, so I'm talking to a voice that will be very familiar to Jughouse listeners, uh, Pamela Gay. Um, how was CAP 2010 for you? What have you enjoyed most this week? It, it's been an absolutely amazing week, listening to all these people from all these nations and how they're able to do outreach to literally tens of thousands of people with almost no resources. It's been truly inspiring and I think the most amazing thing of all is well as Kevin Grovender said tonight they're not just teaching astronomy and they're not just doing astronomy outreach they're teaching society and culture and impacting change. One of the things that's come out of talking to the African guys is they're trying to use astronomy to do more than just teach astronomy they're trying to use it as pathways into science and engineering to try and get change in their countries. 
Yeah, th- there's so many things I just never thought of that came out in this meeting. I, I do a podcast, it goes out to the Globe. I get mail from the Globe, but I never actually thought about it. And listening to them, there's, there's something special about trying to respectfully teach the science of astronomy to people who see the sun as a god. And how do you respectfully explain to these people the life cycle of stars when that means their god will die? Mm. It's such a challenge, and yet they're out there every day trying to do this. Yeah, it must be hard in some places to be culturally sensitive and still try and get the science across. It's a very tricky thing to do, isn't it? And, and the need to be sensitive is one of the things that keeps coming up over and over. Because if you aren't sensitive, you're going to turn people off to the message. This is a problem that we've had in the United States with some of our Native American tribes where our study of the moon, we've just completely stomped all over their religious views of the moon. And we're learning mistakes at a time, but we're learning. And these people seem to have just, from the start, found that wonderful balance of respect, but here's science, and science is the way your people will improve and your lives will improve. Mm. There's a there's a big push to try and capture some of the indigenous knowledge as well. So again, coming into somewhere with the science and telling them this is how it is is sort of you're risking losing that native knowledge. So there's a big push to try and record some of that and get it documented, which is really interesting. And and there's been a number of different groups that have talked about the sky lore, the sky myths that they've been capturing and recording and creating children's books and adult histories out of. And I have to say that's just a wonderful thing. My nerdy sci-fi background, I learned all the constellations because I was a Battlestar Galactica fan, and they kept naming their characters after Greek gods, and those are constellations. So I was a fan of Cassiopeia, so I found Cassiopeia in the sky. Well, this is, it's, it's a gateway into the imagination of children, and if you can inspire, if you can captivate, you're going to catch them so much easier than you are with cold, dry facts at that age. It's just a brilliant way to get into it. And, and other little things that have come in that are showing that people are impacting change in so many different ways. There's, they were talking earlier about the Universal Awareness Program that has this little critter, a little monkey dude with a helmet, and he's an alien who comes into the schools. And he's curious and he's telling the children his stories and listening to theirs and through this creative dialogue they're teaching astronomy and teaching planets and what they found is they're also teaching acceptance of others where they're showing that in one case a girl from a foreign country coming into a classroom was instantly embraced where normally that would never happen. It's meaningful change that is knocking down borders and there's so many projects here that are specifically about knocking down national and cultural borders to share one science. It's a fantastic message and let's hope that it it continues. All we can do is keep promoting, sharing and telling people to look up and tell everyone around them about what they've learned. Brilliant. Thank you very much, Pamela. My pleasure. I'm talking to Prosperi Simpemba from Zambia about the Astronomers Without Borders project. So what exactly is the project? Well, Astronomers Without Borders is a network of people who have an interest in astronomy, uh, regardless of their education background, professional, non-professional, or are welcome to join Astronomers Without Borders. Uh, We are trying to put people together and share the beauty of our skies. The one sky that has no borders in it. Yes, (laughs) because when you look skywards... You don't see any borders, no physical borders. So we want also to overcome religious barriers, political barriers, so that we speak as one people when we talk about astronomy. Fantastic. So how many different countries have you got involved in the project so far? 
barely in every continent we have some representation. And uh, in each country we are in a process of uh, appointing national coordinators. So on the list already we have over 70 national coordinators worldwide. Wow. So we are still appointing more. If you check the www.astronomerswithoutborders.org, and you see that your country is not listed, please get in touch with us so that we can have a national, point of, uh, national coordinator from that country. Fantastic. So this is something that came out of the International Year of Astronomy. Was this one of the IYA projects? Um, Astronomers Without Borders started way back before the International Year of Astronomy, and we are involved in the preparation of the International Year of Astronomy, the preparation of the 100 Hours of Astronomy, that famous project, very successful one. So we started way back before the IYA, and we want to, to be a group that is going to take IYA beyond 2009. So you're participating in the Global Astronomy Month, which is coming up in April this year? Yes, indeed. I'm trying to organize a number of events in Zambia. We're going to have some star parties, uh, some public lectures, some uh, presentations, and we've got some, a number of uh, astronomy videos which I can show to people around. So it's, it doesn't cost so much to to stage an event, please just choose something that is simple to organize and that won't uh, require a lot of money. A public lecture, you don't need to pay anything, perhaps for the venue. A video show, just need to organize those pieces. A talk, free talk, that's all it takes. Just say something about uh, astronomy in the, in the month which we have declared the Global Astronomy Month. And this is going to be an annual event. Every year this month will remain Global Astronomy Month. All right. So if people do arrange events, is there a way they can get in touch with you to let you know what they're, what they're planning and what, what they've done? Actually, on the website, we have a section where you can register the events. Just go to www.astronomerswithoutborders.org. Then you check on the, uh, on the, on the side of the, the webpage. You'll see where it says register an event. Just click there register an event. First register yourself, then you register an event. It is that simple. You don't need to physically come to anybody. You can do it online in your free time. Fantastic. Thank you very much for talking to us. It's been a pleasure. Okay, so I'm talking to Aviva Yamani from Indonesia. Um, so tell me about astronomy in the IYA in Indonesia. Okay, astronomy in IYA in Indonesia, we have a... Okay, first from the institution, we have a some kind of a national space agency there called LAPAN and then we have observatorium and then we have a planetarium. These three have uh, their own uh, project for the IWA. Okay, so outreach and sometimes they make a open night and then public observation and then also open day for the observatory. We have also astronomy club the largest one in the capital city in Jakarta, they have so many activities. They coordinate public lectures in schools, and then in Bandung we do the same way, and then we also managed to have a new, several new clubs in several cities. 100 hours astronomy. This is the first time, I think, for us in Indonesia to have a joint session for seven countries. No, 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 sorry, it's not seven countries, seven cities. So it's um, something new and something something that make us exciting because this is uh, several new, new clubs to, to join us. So IWA gave a big impact in Indonesia and then the annual solar eclipse last year in Indonesia that's another big event. Several groups we make um, 
expedition to the annular part and then some in uh, partial solar eclipse part and there we make a public observation public lecture too and yeah hands-on activities with children and students and then another thing is we make a stamp for Indonesia Highway and then musical we have um, two concerts classical concert so that's IOA in Indonesia and I think it will be continued I mean not the IOA one but beyond IOA we will continue everything and then developing everything in Indonesia so we can reach all the island well thank you very much Aviva good luck with it thank you you're welcome okay um, so I'm talking to Seva Bragason from Iceland. So what happened in Iceland during the International Year of Astronomy? Uh, we did a lot of things. We uh, did the FETU exhibi- exhibition, uh, the From Earth to the Universe exhi- exhi- exhibition. We did a number of workshops with teachers and children and the general public. We did star, star parties. Um, and then we're waiting for the Galileo scopes to show up so we can give uh, every single school in Iceland Galileo scope and DVD, Eyes from the Skies, Eyes on the Sky story, and along with some educational materials as well. So we did, I think, quite a lot. So, of course, in Iceland, you only have parts of the year where you can do nighttime astronomy. Yes, exactly. About three months of the year are, are completely bright, so it's daylight 24-7 almost. So you can't really do any, any astronomy then, but that's also, unfortunately, in the summer. So when it's the warmest, then the skies are mostly clear. Uh, so in the winter, well, it's, on, it's just about the weather then. It's usually our number one enemy because it can be raining for months. But we, we can also be lucky to have clear skies for a few weeks or a few days at least. So we get about, I don't know, 50% of, of, of the days are, are clear to do some stargazing in the winter. Okay, but, and how often do you get um, scuppered by aurora? Um, way too often, I have to tell you. <laughs> well, we, we usually just call it light pollution when you go up, go outside because, it, well, if you're observing like deep sky objects or things like that, it completely covers the sky and you can't see anything. Then we just have to pack our, pack our, pack our telescopes and, and go home. But of course, they're also really beautiful, so it's not just so we're not just really unhappy with them. So when they finally show up, they can be really beautiful, and of course we like it. As soon as long as they just stay on the sky for like half an hour to an hour, then we're really really happy. <laughs> but sometimes it it happens that you get auroras really really early in the night, and it just stays like that for many many hours, and then we just have to curse them at home. <laughs> Fantastic! Thank you very much. Thank you. All right, so I'm here with Maponda Maloso. So what happened in Tanzania in the International Year of Astronomy? Well, International Year of Astronomy in Tanzania was a great success, especially because most people n- knew nothing about astronomy before. But through International Year of Astronomy, we did the star parties, like in 100 hours of astronomy, as well as Galilean night. We went further through the cornerstone project of IYA, which is a university awareness we reached out kids in the rural areas in the northeastern part of Tanzania called Monduri, Leech of Culture, a lot of Maasai people. And after that, we moved back to Morogoro, another region of Tanzania, and then we came back to Dar es Salaam, where we keep on doing this outreach activity to kids and inspire them in science through astronomy. So from that, we do hope it will keep persisting over years and astronomy will make a new hope for science in our country. Fantastic. How many people do you think you reached through these activities? Well, 
Each primary school in Tanzania is containing about 900 pupils and we'll reach over six, so it's going to be like 2,000 kids will reach throughout the country and much more to come this year beyond IYA. So you're carrying on these programs in the years to come? Yes, we are carrying on this program and as for now we are doing at SOS Children Village which is orphanage which is located in Dar es Salaam and we are going to take this as a pilot to connect with other countries in Portugal, German, to do like a connection between the two countries and so that kids can see the difference. Yeah, that's what we're doing. Wonderful. Thank you for talking to us. Okay, welcome. So I'm talking to Cameron Hommels, who's from Columbia University in the States. Um, so tell me what you, you did for the International Year of Astronomy. Well, I'm uh, the director of the public outreach program at Columbia University in New York City. So being in New York City, we have obvious problems with being able to uh, look at the night sky, let alone uh, uh, start looking at really, really deep, deep sky objects. So... With these challenges in mind, we, we tried to put together several different activities over the course of the International Year of Astronomy that obviated the need to, to see these deep sky objects. So we, we had a series of public lectures every couple of weeks, um, well attended by the, by the public, followed by stargazing if the weather was cooperative. And of course, the, like I said, it's, we're not looking at the Crab Nebula here, we're looking at things like planets, the moon, and uh, some really bright uh, nebulae and such. But in addition, we, we took telescopes down into neighboring Harlem, a neighborhood that's right next to Columbia, and set up our telescopes directly beneath the streetlights there on the main street, 125th Street. It worked out very well. We had hundreds of people come by an hour um, because there's so much foot traffic on the street. People were thrilled. They were stunned. Uh, oftentimes, m- most people hadn't ever looked through a telescope before and living in the city hadn't seen astronomical objects really before so so that was very uh, worthwhile we had a photo exhibit come to town we had the from earth to the universe photo exhibition the traveling set came to columbia we we set it up all around campus but campus is uh, is a very public location as well so a lot of tourists come by a lot of people not associated with the university who just live in new york came by we had 10,000 people show up over the course of only 10 days of it being up. It was, it was enormously successful. So, yeah, we had, we had a, a great number of events, and uh, we're hoping to, to retain the momentum for, for the future. Will you be doing more guerrilla astronomy next year? Yes, we're hoping to. As, as, you, as you mentioned, guerrilla astronomy is, is our effort to, to court the public um, on their own turf by going into subways, by going into uh, public parks, and just starting to talk about astronomy in a relatively loud voice for a short period of time until people, you know, boo you off, st- off stage, so to speak. So, uh, yeah, it, it takes a lot of uh, confidence to get up in a public location and just start preaching about uh, education and astronomy and things that you love, but there is definitely a component of people who are, are very responsive to it. And there are some who just want you to be quiet, which is why you keep it to a brief, a brief uh, discussion. Yeah, I, in your talk, you were talking about jumping on and off the subway trains doing this. Yeah, that sounds like a fantastic idea. Yeah, it's, 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 very, it's much more effective to get on and off a subway train in the, in the course of the ride because then if there are crazy people who want to talk to you about their, their pet idea about UFOs or how the universe is uh, inside of a clam or something like that, uh, 
2012, aliens, what have you, you can very easily make your exit into the next car or the next station and they won't necessarily follow you. So it's it makes for an easy way to extricate yourself from these situations. Yeah, it's a fantastic idea. I'm, I've done some of that myself in the UK and yeah, it's a bit intimidating, but you can get some really great reactions from time to time, can't you? Definitely. People are just going about their day. They, they aren't expecting to learn something about uh, science or, or the sky, and, and we, we bring this to them and then furthermore are able to uh, let them know about more information they can, they can find to follow up on it on that topic and a variety of other topics. So in a way, it's, uh, it's preaching, but uh, in a way, it is providing people with opportunities that they may otherwise be unaware of. So at the meeting this week, what's been the most exciting thing that you've heard in the, in the talks that have been going on? Wow, the most exciting thing. Uh, there have been a series of different uh, results that people presented that were very, very impressive to me um, that I was totally unaware of prior to the meeting. Um, things that stand out for me, the gentleman from Hong Kong who was presenting how he's worked on dark sky awareness and uh, light pollution problems in potentially one of the brightest cities in the world in Hong Kong and getting uh, over 3,500 buildings to turn off their lights in downtown Hong Kong for a two-hour period last July, I think it was, just seems like the most incredible thing to, to, to do. I, I, we'd looked at trying to get dark sky awareness going on in New York City because obviously New York and Manhattan suffers from this problem as well, but... I didn't even entertain the thought for long because trying to convince people to turn off lights, it's, it's very challenging. Um, and what, what difference can a student or, or, or a few people make? But obviously he proved me wrong in succeeding at that kind of level to have the amount of awareness that he generated from his events uh, reaching millions of people in, in this one of the biggest and brightest cities in the world is just incredible. Yeah, the pictures he showed were amazing. Well, maybe it's worth trying again. Yeah, I, I, I definitely will look into it in, in New York. Excellent. Well, thank you very much for talking to us. Yeah, thank you very much. So I'm talking to Pedro Russo, who is the global IYA coordinator. So you were heavily, heavily involved in the International Year of Astronomy. So how successful was the IYA? Uh, well, that's, it was very successful. I think it's clear, and that it's clear from the presentations that we had here during this week, that IYA was a huge project, a really global project. And it worked very, very well, because we had all the different communities in astronomy engaged in such a project. And I think this happened for the first time during International Year of Astronomy. Cool. Do you know how many people globally were actually involved in various different projects? It's, it's difficult to say how many people were involved in the organization of IYA. I'll say uh, more than like tens of thousands of people were deeply involved only with the organization. We have already some results from the, the, the official reports that we are now receiving from the, the different countries and different organizations. And we received so far around 35% of these reports. And we are reaching the 100 million people involved in the IYA or was somehow reached during the International of Astronomy. I think this is the biggest project ever in astronomy or in, in astronomy for sure and in science education and public outreach and we have to be all very very proud. Yeah that's impressive so uh, a lot of the projects continuing after the IYA so they're things in place to sort of help that happen? Exactly. Well, it was our idea since the beginning to keep some of the momentum that we created during the International of Astronomy and some of the global projects, the, 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 like the Cornerstone projects and other special projects, projects will continue after 2009. And we also know that most of the countries will keep some of the structures and some of the networks that were created during 2009 to keep doing outreach and education in astronomy. 
Cool, fantastic. And have you recovered yet? Not yet, not yet. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I, I think I'm, I'm more busy now than in some parts of the of 2009. I'm very, very busy now to collect the data and to try, talk with other people, trying to really to, to make as comprehensive as possible our report and really to write down our lessons learned. You know, it's a huge list of lessons learned and a huge list of uh, achievements that we have for 2009. Thank you very okay, much, Patrick. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for that, Megan. Now, astronomy, as we know, and science in general, we like our acronyms, and especially three-letter acronyms, and another... That'd be TLAs, Dave. What? what, what? <laughs> That'd be T- TLAs, TLA? three-letter acronyms. Yeah. <laughs> yep, uh, but it's true, we do like the, them in science, especially in astronomy. We've got the VLA, and we've got the ELT, more of which we'll find out about later. But from one three-letter acronym with A in the middle to another, CAP to NAM. Guys, did you have a good time in Glasgow? Yeah, we had a brilliant week in Glasgow for NAM, apart from having to get up at about six in the morning to get the train up there on the Monday. Um, And I didn't get a deep-fried pizza, which was quite upsetting. But the science was good. (laughs) We managed to get quite a few interviews and generally networked with people. Networking is my new term for drinking. (laughs) <laughs> and, ah, yes. And the end of the meeting was slightly disrupted by the volcano in Iceland um, going off and causing various people to not make their talks or not be able to escape from Nam at the end. Yeah, I think quite quite a few people <laughs> were stuck in Glasgow. Luckily, we got the train, so we weren't. Too but Glasgow is actually a really nice city, so and it was really they had nice a nice weather. weekend. It so was, yeah, it was great. I'm sure they weren't weren't too worried that they had to spend some more time away from <laughs> no. home no. in a nice place. Have you have you ever have you actually been up to the necropolis on the hill because that's a really good place to look at over Glasgow from? I haven't. No, but uh, I did go to the science center and they've got a really tall tower there that we went up in. Oh yes, when I was at the the science center, I did a, a planetarium swap from Birmingham up to Glasgow, Ooh. and uh, their tower wasn't open at that point. Well, it is open now, and it was a very good view from up there, although a little bit scary because oh. the platform moved as as you're walking around, and there were lots of children running around in circles, and it made it wobble quite a bit but i imagine good for seeing stars if you're up there at night and it's also a good place to go and see the new hubble imax 3d as well as we mentioned on the last show and i got got to see it in Mm. london last weekend oh how was it it was amazing oh my god hubble 3d is so good everyone who can go and see it go and see it brilliant uh, sadly, we're only uh, showing how to train a dragon down here in Birmingham. <laughs> as far as I, yeah, as far as I know. And as you mentioned on the last show, everyone needs to know that. So now we have a selection of the interviews that Stuart and Jen recorded whilst they were there. Okay, we're joined by Dr. Lindsay Fletcher from the University of Glasgow. Welcome to the Jodcast. Hello. Pleasure to speak to you. This week we're here at the National Astronomy Meeting. It moves around each year, and this year we're at the University of Glasgow. If you'd just like to tell us what the National Astronomy Meeting is about and why it's in Glasgow this year. Okay, the National Astronomy Meeting, as uh, Stuart said, it's an annual meeting um, and it's basically the uh, big gathering of all UK astronomers, solar physicists, magnetospheric, ionospheric, and solar terrestrial physicists. We've all been meeting together for the last Three years, I think. So typically there'll be about 500, uh, maybe up to 600 sometimes, uh, delegates, a large, large number of students and young postdocs, professors, all describing their work to each other in, the, in posters. We're standing in the poster session just now. That's why it's so noisy. That's in the background. why it's so noisy, yes. And you might be able to pick up the sound of uh, clinking bottles as well as we all enjoy a drink and a chat. And so um, there's rows of posters, everybody's discussing science. There's been um, 
large scale talks, plenary sessions they're called with uh, everybody in listening to one topic and then five parallel sessions going off which are more specialised so you know just a, just a, a it's kind of like a party celebrating science <laughs> really celebrating astronomy in this country And why is it particularly in Glasgow? Well, this year uh, is the 250th anniversary of the founding of the Regius Chair of Astronomy um, in in Glasgow. It's currently held by Professor John Brown, uh, who is the 10th holder of this chair. He's also the 10th Astronomer Royal for Scotland, and sadly this year he's retiring. So there are many reasons for a big party. Um, and astronomy has been taught in Glasgow for, for longer than 250 years but 250 years ago really marks the beginning of research in astronomy in Glasgow so we thought and the RAS agreed that this would be a very nice opportunity to bring the meeting here And as chief organiser what have been your highlights of the week so far as we're on the Thursday now, it's getting towards the end Oh Well, do you know the saddest thing about being chief organiser is that I've been utterly unable to go to any scientific sessions at all or see any posters. I've just been running around like a blue arsed fly. Don't know whether I'm allowed to say that word on the podcast. <laughs> you know, so scientifically, I'm afraid I just can't comment on highlights because I haven't seen anything. But just the, you know, there seems to be a buzz about the meeting. Um, everybody seems to be happy. It seems to have gone smoothly. And I think if I had to actually give a highlight, it would be the uh, dinner in Cayley last night. I was very, very pleased to see so many people up dancing. I thought it was very, I, very good. I thought we were going to have to like drag people up, but as soon as the first dance was announced, it was you know like dive bombing onto the dance floor. It was great, and it just didn't stop all night, as far as I could tell. So I think that should be something that um, maybe it will become a tradition, no, no matter where the NAM is held. Um, maybe there'll be, always be a Kaylee. Well, it was definitely good. a great evening last night, and uh, everyone good. had lots of fun. Good, so. glad to hear it. Thank you very much for telling us about NAM. You're welcome. I've got Professor Andrew Cameron here from the University of St Andrews. Thank you for talking to us today. Hello. And you're um, involved with the SuperWASP project, so could you tell us what that is? Okay, the SuperWASP project is aimed at finding large numbers of planets going around other stars whose orbits are edge on to the line of sight so that the planet passes between us and the star. And planets like that are very special because from the dip in light that's blocked when the planet goes across we can tell how big the planet is. How long has this been going for? We started operating in the middle of 2006 uh, with two batteries of cameras, one on the Canary Island of La Palma and the other at Sutherland in South Africa. And you've got quite an exciting result that you've released at NAM this year. Could you tell us about that? Yes. Well, we, we've announced our latest batch of nine planets And the exciting thing with these ones is that two among them are going around their stars in the opposite direction to the star's spin. So they join another three WASP objects that we've already found from earlier discoveries using the HARP spectrograph on the 3.6-meter telescope at ESO. So those ones, together with another backward planet found by another group, means that so far six planets out of the 27 whose orbital tilts have been measured are going around their stars in the wrong direction. So I guess that means what we think about how planets form. Is is that wrong now? It means that we have to revise our theories about how these very close orbiting planets got there. We think that planets form in the cold outer reaches of the disks from which stars themselves form. 
And in our own solar system, you can see the gas giant planets out in the cold regions of the outer solar system. But they are orbiting in near-circular orbits in roughly the same plane as the Sun's equator, just the same as the Earth. So if a planet migrates in through the disk, you would expect that when it finally reached its final orbit, it would also still be going around in more or less the equatorial plane of the star and orbiting in the same direction as the star's spin. But that's not what we're seeing here at all. Any ideas of what is making the, them go around in the wrong direction? Well, there have been a few alternative theories around as to how you can make hot Jupiters. Uh, and these theories originated because observers began to notice when the first extrasolar planets were discovered, that many of them were not in circular orbits. They were looping close to the star at one end of the orbit and far away at the other end, rather like comets in our own system. And in order to get into an orbit like that, if a planet has formed in a disk, it usually has to have had a gravitational interaction with another object in the system. So we think that what may have happened here is that either there were more than one gas giant planet which underwent a gravitational interaction, one of them was thrown out of the system, and the survivor was left in an eccentric orbit. Or possibly you can call on the well-known fact that many of the stars that we see in the sky are not actually single, that they have other stars orbiting around them at very large distances. And if there was even a very small star orbiting at, say, a thousand times the Earth's distance from the Sun, we wouldn't actually be able to detect it very easily, but its effect on the orbit of a Jupiter would be really dramatic. It, it would gradually pump up the orbit until it became extremely eccentric, rather like a comet orbit. And as it does so, the orbit doesn't just become more elongated, it also tumbles in order to conserve angular momentum. Now, when that happens, if the planet passes very close to the star, it'll raise a tidal bulge on the star, and that exerts forces that gradually, over hundreds of millions of years, cause the orbit to shrink. And so you can make your hot Jupiter, but it will get frozen into an orbit that is at some crazy tilt to the stellar rotation axis. So the planets that SuperWASP detects, these all these hot Jupiters, planets that are like Jupiter but very close to, to their star? That's right. They're, they're all We can tell from looking at them that they're all gas giant planets. They're all about the size of Jupiter, or slightly bigger, and we can also weigh them by using a spectrograph to measure the amount by which the central star is wobbling around its common center of mass with the planet. So we get both the radius and the mass. That gives us the density, because you can work out the volume from the radius, and so we can make a pretty good stab at what kind of planets they are. So what about planets that are like the Earth? Is there anything that's, that WASPs can do to detect these? Um, we, we can't actually detect them directly. There was, um, the, the, There is an idea that if you have uh, even quite a low-mass planet outside a hot Jupiter, its gravitational influence on the hot Jupiter will cause the orbit to speed up and slow down. And so you might be able to detect an Earth-like planet from the changes in the orbit of the hot Jupiter. The trouble is that this theory... Um, if it's correct, this new th this idea that, that the hot Jupiters arrived there by a more violent process um, could actually mean that there wouldn't be any terrestrial planets outside. Now, the reason for this is that if a planet migrates in through the disk, it has to do it during the lifetime of the disk, which is only about three million years. Whereas the if you get there by the game of cosmic billiards, 
then it takes hundreds of millions of years. Now, the trouble is that if you move a planet in through the disk, there will still be plenty of material in its wake that could subsequently form into an Earth-like planet. But if you have a giant planet looping close to the star and then going far away, rampaging through the system, it's going to stir up all that debris in its wake, which will never then get a chance to form into an Earth-like planet. So if the people who are looking for Earth-like planets this way through the transit timing variations don't find any, then that could be another thread of evidence in support of the idea that the hot Jupiters got to where they are slowly and through a violent process. Is there any way that you can detect more than one planet in a system? Because I was just thinking if, if one planet's going around the star the wrong way, would it mean that all planets are going around in the wrong way? That would be a very interesting thing to be able to work out. Um, there is one lovely system called HAT-P13. That's a very... Yeah. It just rolls off the tongue, that it's name, isn't it? It's a great name, <laughs> isn't it? Yes, it's from the um, Hungarian Automated Transit Search. And uh, that system consists of a hot Jupiter, but there is another object outside it in an eccentric orbit. And people have been looking at the dynamics of that system, doing long-term computer integrations, and they've come to the conclusion that both of those planets are actually orbiting in more or less the same plane. So that would be an argument against this particular theory. But uh, it's early days yet, and I think the best thing that we can do at the moment is just keep, it, keep on finding more and more examples to build up the statistics and figure out what's going on. What's the latest planet count for extrasolar planets? Uh, yesterday, when I looked at it, it was 445, but then we announced another nine. So I guess that brings it up to 454. <laughs> okay, and that's mid-April 2010 for anyone who's listening to this outside. Is it possible that there are multiple ways that planets form? I mean, we used to saying that there's competing theories, but is it possible that they're all right? I think that, that that's actually the most likely explanation. Uh, we, we certainly know that in our own planetary system, Jupiter and Saturn did migrate a little bit, and Uranus and Neptune appear to have migrated a lot. So there is some disk migration that goes on, but it may not be violent enough to produce hot Jupiters. So it may be that in order to produce planetary systems like ours, you need a certain amount of disk migration. But if you want to produce the really wacky systems where you have Jupiter-like planets that have formed out in the cold reaches and then been brought close to the star, you need to appeal to much more violent processes, violent interactions between planets that have formed at more or less the same time out of the disk, and also perhaps to distant stellar binary companions. Uh, I think we can just be grateful that our own solar system seems to have had a relatively placid history. What about the stars that these planets form around? Are they similar to our sun or are they completely different? Um, they're actually very similar to our sun. Uh, the, the cameras that we use to detect the planets are only 11 centimeters in diameter. So we're really looking at stars that are relatively nearby. We're also looking out of the plane of the galaxy. Now this means that because our telescopes are very small, we can't detect small faint red stars very far away. So we don't see very many of them because we're not exploring a big enough volume. Conversely, if you're looking for big, white, hot stars which don't live very long, those ones are confined very close to the plane of the Milky Way galaxy. And because we're looking up out of the plane, 
all the ones that are close enough for us to detect are actually too bright for our detectors. And there's a sweet spot in between which goes from stars that are about a thousand degrees cooler than the sun to stars that are about a thousand degrees hotter. So most of the planet host stars we're looking at are actually pretty similar to the sun. Well, thank you for talking to us and good luck with the future of Super Wasp. Right. Thank you very much. I've got Dr. William Baines here from MIT and University of Cambridge. You're kind of taking both Cambridges there. I am. And you're a biochemist by trade, is that right? Yes, biochemist. I've got to ask you, what is a biochemist doing at the National Astronomy Meeting? Well, there are three answers. The first is I don't know. (laughs) And the second is because I was invited here. But the real reason is I've, I've developed an interest in astrobiology. And obviously, if you look at astrobiology, you're looking at bodies outside the Earth, and that means astronomy. You've been turning things on their heads a little bit today at NAM. Um, can you tell me what your talk was about life on Titan? And you seem to have some interesting ideas about what life needs to exist. Could you expand on that? Yeah, well, I, I come at uh, astrobiology from a background experience in the biotech industry. And we're used to the idea we don't really know what life is and how it works at all. So I started from some really basic ideas about what we mean by living things and try to build up from that what the chemistry going on and those living things would be. And I use it as an example the surface of Titan as an extremely non-Earth-like environment in which I can then look at the chemistry, look at what, what goes on there, energy sources and things like that, and say, what might life look like if it was native to the surface of Titan? Classically, astronomers think of carbon, water, these are things that need for life. Is that, do you agree with that, or is it a bit more abstract? I start from a much more abstract idea. I start from life as being something that propagates itself so it can grow and it can reproduce based on some internal code, an internal description. And that's why living things pass their characteristics on to the next generation. They've got a description themselves that they pass on to their offspring. Um, this really quite different from any other physical phenomenon we know. And you can build from that, and a lot of my talk was about how you logically build on that, to say what the chemistry going on in that living system must do. Now, that doesn't necessarily constrain you to carbon or to water. I, I don't think astronomers are wrong to look for carbon and look for water. I think you, know, you have to have a liquid. You have to have something to dissolve the chemistry in. And water is a very common liquid. Water is a common chemical in the universe. It's common, uh, commonly present as a liquid. It's obviously present on Earth, but also inside the moons of Jupiter um, as liquid. There's a lot of liquid water around. So that, that makes sense. And if you're going to dissolve the chemistry in water, then having chemistry based on carbon is a really good idea for a variety of, of chemical reasons. So I think looking for carbon, looking for water, okay, that's, that's sensible. But it is worthwhile thinking, what else might there be out there? Because there might be other things we haven't thought of that we could also look for and be really interesting. When we're talking about Titan, so I'm, I'm not quite sure what the conditions actually are like on Titan. Is there anywhere on Earth that's comparable to it? Oh, not outside the lab, no. It's really cold, so it's about um, 90 Kelvin, and so that's far colder than anywhere on Earth. Um, there's, uh, there's quite a lot of water there, but it's present as ice. It's frozen completely solid. It's always present as, as ice. Essentially, water is a rock on Titan. There are lakes on Titan, and there is a fantastic picture from the Cassini mission came out fairly recently showing a tiny little gleam on the pole of titan where sunlight's reflecting off a lake but the lake's made of made of liquid methane and ethane so it's essentially natural gas as a liquid on the surface 
You don't get anything like that on Earth. So, I mean, this, if, we, if there was life on Titan, it wouldn't be able to survive over here? If you transported it to Earth and opened the door, it would boil, and then it would probably <laughs> burst into flames. And uh, one of the sort of bizarre things to come out of, of my analysis of the sort of chemistry that might go on, because clearly the chemistry that goes on in, in liquid methane is going to be different from the chemistry going on in liquid water. Um, it's different types of chemicals, different rates, and so on and so forth. One of the analyses of, of the type of chemistry that could happen is suggest the chemicals in there would smell absolutely revolting. <laughs> so you talk, I mean, everybody knows hydrogen sulfide is really smelly. It's this, it's this famous rotten egg yeah. smell. Um, but there are also things like phosphenes and silanes, um, other sorts of hydrogen, uh, other sorts of sulfides. These things all smell absolutely horrible. And they smell horrible because they're really poisonous and really reactive. And, and they react with your proteins, they react with the water inside your nose. They're just hideous stuff. Um, quite a lot of chemistry has been done on these because they're important industrial chemicals in some cases. So, you know, we know quite a lot about the chemistry, and this is why we know they're horrible and also quite poisonous. So we wouldn't have much chance of maybe communicating with these these well, aliens. Communicating is, is, is certainly not face to face. No, I mean this idea. You know, you 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 sit down in the Starship Enterprise <laughs> mess room and have dinner with them. Just yeah, you know, that that's really not going to work. Um, communicating more remotely though, uh, if if there were aliens capable of communicating, then that that you could do. Um, I must say, I think it not very likely that there are. I think it's pretty unlikely there are aliens there at all, to be honest. Yeah, the, the environment's just really weird. And from what we know of life, it doesn't seem very likely. If there is, it's probably going to be fairly slow and fairly simple. So it's going to be you know, little bacteria-like things, um, possibly something big enough to see, but it's going to be slow-growing. It's going to be um, not really exciting communication material. OK, well, thank you for talking to us. Um, just one final question is a bit out there. Um, in your opinion, is there life in other life in the universe, and how likely are we to discover it? Oh wow! Now that's that's just, the biggie, just, isn't it? Um, I I think there's there's almost certainly life out there in the universe. Um, the question of whether we're likely to discover it depends how common it is. Um, and the current thought is that life is very common. Life arose very quickly on Earth after the Earth became habitable. Um, and if that is not a statistical fluke, then that means life must arise quite easily, and that means it must arise quite easily on other planets. I don't think that argument's necessarily accurate. I think life has to arise on Earth because if it didn't, we wouldn't be here talking about it. So Earth is, is a biosample. So if we say, let's take Earth out of the equation, how many planets do we know have got life on? None. How many can we look at? None. So we don't really know the answer at all. Um, I, I must say, as a biochemist, I think life is extraordinarily complicated and hence has to be slightly unlikely. So, so will we find life somewhere else? I, the universe is huge. I'm sure life is out there somewhere. I'm not enormously optimistic that it's anywhere nearby. But let's cross our fingers. Uh, let's hope I'm wrong. Let's hope there's little green men running around on Mars because that would just be brilliant. Well, thank you very much for talking to us today. You're welcome. Thanks for that, Jen and Stuart. And, of course, we do have a lot more interviews that Jen and Stuart did, but those will be coming out in future episodes of the Jodcast. 
And I'll just say, unfortunately, one of the interviews I did was affected by a dodgy cable. So it was a really nice interview I as well. I think this is a continuing theme for Nam because when you sent us off last year, we had a dodgy cable and we had to redo a couple of interviews. And I wasn't able to catch the, yeah. the person I interviewed again, unfortunately, in the rest of the week. I didn't manage to, to find him again. We'll have to Skype him. But it was really interesting. It was about asteroids falling into white dwarfs, which it was very interesting to hear. Unfortunately, no one's going to hear it on the Jodcast. Now, we should mention that as well as us being at the National Astronomy Meeting, there were a couple of other podcasts there as well. There was Ben from The Naked Scientists, who was up there interviewing all sorts of people, and Astronomy Now magazine were there as well, and they filmed some video interviews which are available on YouTube. So we'll put links to The Naked Scientists podcast and Astronomy Now's YouTube videos in our show notes as well, so you can go and listen to some other takes on some of the interviews and some other people who we didn't talk to. And I should also say hi to you. I'm really sorry I've forgotten your name, but one of our listeners was at NAM and he came up to say hi. Apparently we were the reason for him joining the Royal Astronomical Society. I think he said he was an engineer and an amateur astronomer. So hello, I'm really sorry I can't remember your name. You gave me your business card and everything and I'm just hopeless. Dear me, not good enough. I know. No, <laughs> we, we, I think we need to downgrade your, your credit rating to junior again. Oh, you just try. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, how about you redeem yourself by telling us about uh, ELT? So when we were at NAM, one of the plenary talks was about um, challenges in making these extremely large telescopes. These are So that's what ELT yeah, stands e. for. It. So this is just a show about acronyms, isn't it? Well, EELT is the European Extremely Large Telescope. It's another one of those with E in the beginning of the acronym where it means something different every time. When we were at NAM, they didn't quite know where they were going to build it. And in the last few days, they've decided that it's going to be built in Chile which is where, also where Alma is. It's a very good place to do astronomy because you're very high up. There's no one around and there's... So there's no interference from, from local towns and villages and... Mobile phones above, and trains. Yeah, exactly. And you're, you're above most of the atmosphere. Yeah. And we've been, we've been talking about optical telescopes quite a bit. In the April 1990, we were talking about the new technology telescope and talking about the sizes of them. Now, the EELT is going to be ginormous. It's going to be 42 metres... Yes, the answer's life, universe and everything in there. (laughs) (laughs) Although there has been a bit, the press release said that it was going to be the world's largest telescope, which obviously, as radio astronomers, we know that that isn't true. So the largest largest telescope uh, in the world is the Arecibo telescope, of course, which was in Goldeneye and other films like that. The world's biggest eye on the sky. But uh, just because they've decided where they will build it, but they haven't actually decided that they will build it, which is a bit strange. they They won't know until the end of... 2010 at the end of this year whether ESO will actually go ahead and build this but they've decided where they will build it if they make it well it's good to have somewhere for it to go if you decide to actually yeah I think they to needed to know it. where it would go before they worked out the logistics of everything because the other site was La Palma which is quite a different environment in a way up a mountain instead of in a high up desert and if they do decide to build it I think they're going to start operations in 2018 which isn't that far away but at the same time is when you think about how technology develops so quickly it's a lot quicker than a space mission so the hubble space telescope for instance took many many years to develop whereas doing it on the ground it's it's quicker overall to develop and you can also make your instruments new instruments to go on on your telescope and that's the important thing of the instruments usually that you can improve those over a few years and if it's on the ground it's fairly inexpensive to go and change them and you don't have to rely on having servicing missions and needing the shuttle and various things like that Talking of Hubble, the Galaxy Zoo project, which which we've mentioned many times on the Jodcast, has added a new feature 
they now have Hubble images of galaxies for you to classify, which is quite exciting. They launched that in time for the 20th anniversary of Hubble at the, on the 24th of April. I, I, I really like the fact that everyone, anyone, can join in with Galaxy Zoo. I really like that. You don't have to be a scientist. You just have to be able to um, take a look at the pictures. And if you want to, you can start doing some science with them as well, as people have started doing in the Galaxy Z forums, going and doing their own science projects based on the images I've been looking at. That's brilliant. But if you only have your own telescope or pair of binoculars, or indeed if you don't have anything, what you do have is Ian Morrison here to tell you what you can see in the night sky throughout May. Well, let's have a look at what we might be able to see in the night sky during the month of May. Of course, in our northern hemisphere, it means that uh, the nights are getting rather short. So I'm afraid some of the things I'm going to point out, you might have to sort of be up in the middle of the night to see. But what about the stars? Well, after sunset, you've got Gemini setting down in the west. Leo the lion, like the lions on Trafalgar Square, is towards the south, going a bit towards the southwest. And over to the left of Leo and lower down is the constellation of Virgo, in which now lies the planet Saturn. Between the, sort of the, 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 the tail of Leo the lion and the star Spica, the brightest star in Virgo, is a region we call the realm of the galaxies, because there with the telescope you can see many, many galaxies forming what we call the Virgo cluster, which is the supercluster, or at the heart of the supercluster, of which our own little local group of galaxies, our Milky Way galaxy and Andromeda being the largest, are outlying members. So it's a very rich area to look at when there's no moon and you have a dark, transparent sky. High overhead, we have Ursa Major, with the lovely group of stars forming the plough, and Merrick and Dubhe are the pointers that point towards the pole stars, I'm sure you know. Uh, with binoculars, if you look at the tail, there are three stars forming the tail of the bear or the handle of the, of the plough. And the uppermost one, the middle one of those three, is in fact easily seen as a double star system with binoculars. And if you look with a telescope, you'll see that the brighter of the two is in fact a double itself. So it's a very pretty thing to see. And you'll also find there's another rather fainter star making a broad triangle with the two. So that's a nice little binocular object. As the night continues and you look over towards the east, you'll see the star Arcturus in Bootes. And then the constellation of Hercules. The brightest stars make up the keystone. And about two-thirds of the way up, on the right-hand side of the keystone, binoculars might pick out a little fuzzy glow. And that's a rather lovely globular cluster called M13. As you go across, you come to the bright star Vega in Lara. And then we have Cygnus the Swan above Aquila the Eagle, a rather beautiful area of the sky we'll talk more about next month. Down below Hercules is a rather large but not very prominent constellation, Ophiuchus, below which is Scorpius, and a bit to the lower left is Sagittarius. There, towards the centre of our galaxy, and they're very rich in objects, but sadly from our northern climes, we don't see them very well. It's a very good reason to go down, perhaps as far south as the Adriatic, or the south of Italy, even better, to actually try and look at that part of the sky to see some of the lovely things that are there. 
OK, well, what about the planets? Well, the king of planets, Jupiter, Jove, that passed behind the sun way back at the end of February, so it's now visible again in the pre-dawn sky. It sort of rises at the start of May, not long before twilight begins to sort of increase over in the, in the east. It's at magnitude minus 2.1. So given a good low eastern horizon, you should spot it quite easily with binoculars. Now, of course, during the month it will rise earlier and earlier, of course, so does the sun. But by the end of the month, it rises about 2.30 British summer time and will then be minus 2.3 magnitude. Probably not the very best time to see Jupiter, but there is a highlight coming up a bit later. Saturn may now be easily seen in the south after sunset. It lies in Virgo down to the lower left of the constellation of Leo the Lion and can thus be seen for much of the night at magnitude about plus 0.8, getting somewhat fainter to plus 1 during the month. The angular size of the disk is about 18.5 arc seconds. The rings extend to about 40 arc seconds. It's not as bright as it usually is, because the rings are, in fact, very close to edge on, so appear very thin. In fact, at this moment in time, due to the difference between the inclinations of the orbits of Saturn and the Earth, the tilt, as we see it, is actually reducing. It starts a month at around 2 degrees, but by about late May, it has a minimum angle of about 1.7 degrees, so the rings will be very, very thin. And then, finally, it starts to open out, and gradually we'll see more and more of the northern face of the rings. We haven't seen that side of the rings for quite a while. And again, if you have a small telescope, you can easily see the brightest satellite, Titan. That's at magnitude 7.8. And if you've got a telescope of 8 inches or so, you can see several more. Very nice, lovely planet to observe. Mercury passed in front of the Sun on April the 28th. And that's going to appear in the morning twilight sky during the latter part of May. It's at its greatest angular distance from the Sun on the 26th of May, but there's a problem. It lies along the ecliptic, and that is at a very shallow angle to the horizon at dawn. And so even then, it'll only about be about 5 degrees above the horizon, perhaps half an hour before sunrise. You might just pick it out, but honestly, it's not a very good time to see Mercury. Now, of course, over the last few months we've been observing Mars. It's still visible in the southwest after sunset. It's actually now moving quite rapidly eastwards from Cancer into Leo. The angular size starts May at 7.3 arc seconds and drops to 6. Um, on the 31st of May, it will lie just 3.5 degrees to the right of Regulus. So with binoculars, you'll have both Mars and Regulus in the same field of view. With that angular size, I'm afraid a telescope isn't going to show you very much on the surface. You'll just see this salmon pink colour. Well, if any of you have looked towards the evening sky after sunset, you couldn't have failed to see the lovely planet Venus. Shining at magnitude minus 3.9, it's the brightest object in the sky after the moon. It has an angular size of 11.4 arc seconds, which is gradually increasing because it's getting nearer to us. Interestingly, its brightness stays pretty constant all the time we see it, at about minus 3.8 to minus 4. And that's because as it nears the Earth, it becomes a thin crescent. It's also much nearer to us. And the effective reflecting area, as we see it from Earth, remains pretty well constant. 
So quite a lot to see this month if you're prepared to have a look both in the morning and the evening. So do we have some highlights for the month? Well, there are a few, but some of them you've got to be uh, up in the middle of the night. But one of them you can see in broad daylight. I mentioned Jupiter is now visible in the morning. Well, if you get up at about five o'clock British summer time on the 9th and 10th of May, and if it's clear, you'll see Jupiter with a rather lovely thin crescent moon in the pre-dawn sky. On the 9th, the moon is about six degrees up and to the right of Jupiter. On the 10th, it's about 10 degrees away to its left. Maybe, if you have a look one of those two days, it'll be the first time you see Jupiter on its, shall we say, its new apparition. An apparition is an appearance of a planet in the sky. Now, this next one I think is rather nice. It's to have a go at spotting Venus in daytime. Now, it's not that easy to do because unless you're actually focused on it, you won't see it, even if it's bright enough to be seen. On Sunday the 16th of May, the moon passes just below the planet Venus. At 10 o'clock on Sunday morning, British summer time, the northern edge of the moon is just a quarter of a degree below the planet, so that should make it relatively easy to find. Now, at that time, the moon and Venus will lie just five degrees south of east at an elevation of 36 degrees. So if you have a compass to give you where east is, it should be quite easy to scan up and down with binoculars and find both the moon and Venus. Now, they lie 30 degrees away from the sun, which is quite a distance, but please still be very careful when looking for them. Keep well towards the east and keep your binoculars very, very well away from the sun. So that would be a rather nice thing to see. Now, of course, later that night they'll still be visible. And, in fact, they'll lie very close to the open cluster M35 in Gemini, which will be one degree above the moon. So with binoculars, that would be a rather nice thing to see as well. I haven't before talked about objects on the moon. A lot of astronomers don't like the moon because its light prevents you seeing faint objects. But if it's there, I quite like to look at it. And around the 25th, 26th, just before the moon becomes full, the Terminator is relatively close to an interesting object. It's called Schroeter's Valley. And it lies very close to two craters, a bright rayed crater called Aristarchus, which is 41 kilometers across, and another much older crater called Herodotus, which is about 36 kilometers across. The valley extends north then west for about 97 kilometers, has a width of about six to nine kilometers and a depth of about one kilometer. And it's a very interesting object to look at. I've also, on the night sky page, just put night sky into Google, included an image taken by the astronauts. And the whole thing, the two craters being eyes and the um, form of the valley, are sometimes called the cobra's head. So you might like to look at night sky, but have a look yourself uh, with a telescope if you've got one. Okay, well, a couple to go. Um, on the 28th of May, a star called Sigma Scorpii, which means it's in the constellation of Scorpius, not far from Antares, which is the brightest red star in Scorpius, is occulted by the moon. It's actually quite nice to see a little star disappear behind the moon. That's around 2 o'clock BST. And I put a little diagram on showing where it would be seen as from Manchester. 
but because the moon's quite close, we get parallax, and quite where you'll see it in relation to the moon will depend whereabout you are. So it disappears soon after two o'clock in the morning and reappears about an hour later. You might just have a look at that. The moon and Antares will be low in the south, but of course you can't miss the moon if it's clear. And finally, at the very end of the month, you have a reasonable chance of spotting a comet. Not very bright, I'm afraid. It's called Comet R1 McNaught. It will be low in the northeast, again about two o'clock in the morning. Now, during May, the comet passes low below the constellations of first Pegasus and then Andromeda. But it'll be easiest to spot on the very last day because then it is just below the star Beta Andromedae, which is quite a bright star and easy to find. In fact, that star is on the star hop route from the square of Pegasus to M31. You start at the top left star of the square, which is Alpha Andromedae. You go left and a touchdown in this case to a star and then continue left and up a bit. And you then come to Beta Andromedae. Now, to find M31, you turn sharp right, you pass one brightish star, and the same distance again gets you to M31, which is a fuzzy-looking object. Instead, if you just get to Beta Andromedae and drop your binoculars a little bit below, you should also see a fuzzy object, not nearly as bright, but that will in fact be Comet McNaught. Now, it may well get brighter during June, and I'll tell you about that next month. So there we go, some things for you to look at during the month of May. Now, I've been asked, and I continue to say a little bit about the Southern Hemisphere, and, of course, the region that you can see down there that we can't is towards the south. And let me just say one or two of the things you can see sort of after sunset and during the mid-evening. And, of course, down there you've got much longer nights than we have up here. Well, the Milky Way is arcing over from the east to the west fairly high in the south. And almost straight up uh, above you is the little constellation of Crooks, the Southern Cross, there are two bright stars in Centaurus, Centaurus Alpha, Centaurus Beta, that are the pointers that point towards Crooks. If on the way to Crooks you sort of turn left and go up a bit, you might well spot another fuzzy object, and that's Omega Centauri. It's been said for a long time it's been the best and brightest globular cluster, that's a spherical group of stars that date back from the time our galaxy was formed. However, it's now thought by some it's not actually a globular cluster, but the core of a small galaxy whose stars were sort of torn away by the gravitational effects of our own galaxy. The reason they say that is because there may well be a little black hole at its heart, and also there are several generations of stars, whereas globular clusters tend all to be old stars dating from perhaps 10, 11 billion years ago. But it's a nice object to look at. Coming down towards the east, you've got Scorpius, which of course you see a lot better than we do. Down at the bottom of Scorpius, um, there's a rather lovely thing, which is called the Southern Jewel Box. You might like to look at that. And then, of course, you've got Sagittarius, which is rising in the east and rises higher during the evening. And that is absolutely full of lovely objects. And you can't fail to spot, with binoculars, a lovely bright region above what we call the teapot of uh, Sagittarius, which is in fact the um, nebulous region called Messier 8. 
Um, if you imagine the shape of the teapot and the spout and liquid pouring out of the spout as you hold it up, that liquid would actually fall through a rather lovely cluster called M7. This is an open cluster. Up to the right of that, there's another cluster we call M6, which isn't quite as spectacular, but nevertheless, that is a wonderful region to observe. And you will see Ophiuchus as well as we do, higher up. Um, in fact, the sun spends a bit more time in Ophiuchus than it does uh, in Scorpius, I believe, on its path through the heavens. Uh, so it really, it ought to be one of the um, constellations of the ecliptic. But would you want to be known as an Ophiuchan? Perhaps not. At that point, I shall stop. I hope you have a nice month's observing. Thanks for that, Ian. And now we've come to that point of the show where we round up what you've been saying to us so far in the feedback section. So, what's been on the forum? Well, on the forum there have been a few comments mostly relating to the April Fool and our catch-up show from the April Fool. But we also had some comments from Rapid Eye, who's managed to see the Hubble 3D at their local IMAX and said it was awesome. Uh, which probably is the same response that, that Jen gave us a bit earlier. Awesome, 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 awesome. And Rapid Eye goes on to say that the shuttle launch in 3D with the gazillion watt sound system takes your breath away, and then flying through the Orion Nebula and having stars flying past your ears is incredible. I'm just sorry that I've not been able to get to London or Glasgow to see it. I have it. to say that the, the space, I think the space shuttle bits, and you know when the when you see the astronauts actually fixing Hubble and changing things, that was the most impressive stuff for me. The Orion Nebula was incredible, but actually seeing them going into Hubble and taking bits out and it was just awesome <laughs> how many times can I say awesome in this show even more times than uh, than we had in the April 1990 sorry the spring <laughs> 1990 edition with our astronomy theatre and over on Twitter we've had some comments from NZ Telescopes from Oggy Space James Polly Caroline Visits Chris and Pradex, who says that our two shows for April were the best Hubble celebration they've heard yet. So thank you very much for those nice comments. And apparently it felt odd saying Jodon in the 1990s. That's probably because, you know, there's no reason to say Jodon. What, what does that refer to in the 1990s? Ah, but it was who brought knows? back from the future. <laughs> from the Astro Yes, in the, time, in the time travel phone box, that was, that's what happened. <laughs> yep. We do think of everything, don't we? Mm-hmm. It's true. Over on Facebook, we've had a couple of messages on the wall. Um, thank you us for the effort on the Jodcast. Uh, the Jodcast is the best podcast that Chris Matthews downloads. And Carlo Prishtak pointed out that the 11th Doctor approves of Jodrell Bank. So, uh, yes, we're watching that and series. I think, I think there was a message on Facebook as well asking if the person in, that do in the Doctor Who episode was from Jodrell Bank, but unfortunately mm. they were an actor. Yeah, it's as a shame. As far as we know. They, they could have had me, well, I've never both seen them. an actor and from Jodrell Bank. <laughs> <laughs> they missed a trick there. They, they yeah. did. Well, they, they cast someone younger than me as the Doctor as well, so they missed a trick there. <sighs> but it was nice. I think they had someone from ATNF, the Australia Telescope National Facility. They had Jodrell Bank. They had um, NASA. And they had Patrick Moore. Mm -hmm. And the Japanese Space Centre. So a nice representative sample of the world there. It I keep on getting flashbacks to Meteor for some reason now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, don't don't go back to Meteor. <laughs> and on and over on email, we've got to say get well soon to Kim Rowe. 
Um, she was in hospital earlier this year and said that listening to Jogcast helped to get through the difficult time. So that's really good to hear. We're just glad that we can help. Thanks also to Richie Jarvis, who says that he listens to the Jogcast on Astronomy FM while in the observatory. And Hakan, I think that's how you pronounce it. He really liked the Spring 1990 episode. He thinks that all of the episodes are great, but that Spring 1990 really took him on a nostalgia trip. And just a note there about the email we had from Richie Jarvis. He also co-presents Under British Skies, which is another podcast which is featured on astronomy.fm. So if you haven't already had a listen to Under British Skies, then head over to astronomy.fm and try and catch them sometime. And, of course, if you want to send us any feedback about the shows, you can get in touch with us via the website at www.jodcast.net. You can go to the forum at forum.jodcast.net. We're on YouTube at youtube.com slash jodcast. On Facebook at jodcast.net slash Facebook. On Twitter at twitter.com slash jodcast. Or you can send us some real posts. We always like to get postcards and letters, so you can find the address on the website. Yeah, please send us some posts, because otherwise the only post we're going to get is from me when I go off travelling, and it's going to be to myself. And that's Oh, don't worry, you'll, you'll be getting some postcards from Canada and America when I'm over there as well. <laughs> It'd be nice I don't some... think we should be getting posts from ourselves. Yeah. That's, that's not the way it should be. <laughs> Maybe we can bribe some people to send us posts. So yeah, stop us from sending posts to ourselves, please. By sending us some real posts. And one last reminder, head over to the website and fill in our survey if you haven't already done so. It's www.jodcast.net slash survey. And unfortunately, that brings us to the end of this issue of the Jodcast. Uh, We have a huge set of thanks to give out at the moment. So thanks to George Miley, Kevin Govender, Carolina Erdman, Pamela Gay, Prospery Simpemba, Aviva Yamani, Sava Braggerson, and Ponda Malozo. Cameron Hummels, Pedro Russo, Lindsay Fletcher, William Baines, and Andrew Cameron for their interviews at CAP and NAM, and also to Julia Linthicum, Chip Joel, Gwendolyn Jensen Woodard, and Fiona Thrale for the intro outro. Uh, the editors this time were Adam Averson, Chris Tibbs, and Ian MacDonald. But for now, until next time, chod on. Bye. Bye. C'est magnifique. Oh, this is awesome. Oh, that's nice, isn't it? The Jodcast. A sign of good taste. Has anyone actually listened to this thing?